Hey, uh, good to see you all. Welcome to Veritas. Hey, I want to start. Let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. Have you guys ever had in your life what feels like a make-or-break moment? Yes, right. You know, one of those times where you feel like who you are is at stake. Who you are is at stake. A time where maybe you've had to look yourself in the proverbial mirror and ask the question, who am I? One of those moments happened for me a few years ago. It was 2015 May. Uh, I finally finished my seminary degree. I say finally because it took me almost five years and a couple summers. Uh, not because I'm unintelligent, but well, at least I think so. Uh, but because I lived in Columbia and my grad school uh, was in St. Louis. And so I was driving back and forth a few days a week to go to class. And so it just took longer uh, than the normal person. Um, and while it was a huge relief uh, to be done with seminary, really the, the, the path to becoming a pastor was just beginning. That's because in order to be ordained, in order to become an official pastor in our denominations, you have to pass a bunch of exams. You have to finish seminary and you have to pass a bunch of exams. Three rounds, actually. And the first round is three tests. Uh, it's three written exams. covers, uh, you know, church history, theology, Bible content, uh, sacraments, et cetera, et cetera. Real fun stuff, right? Um, you take these exams. They're spread out over a few days. Uh, and if you pass, you get to go on to the next round. The next round is, is an oral exam. And so in this case, what you have to do is you have to, you have to go into a room, and it's a smaller-ish room, and there's like six or eight guys sitting around a table, pastors, ministry leaders, um, and they start asking you questions. And they literally ask me questions for about two hours, Bible content, theology, sacraments, church history, anything they wanted to ask, similar content they could ask, and I had to answer. If you get through that, you go to the third and the last round. The last round is another oral exam. But this time, instead of six to eight guys, in my case, I walked into an auditorium filled with about 50 to 75 pastors, ministry leaders from many different churches from all over the Midwest region. And I had to stand there publicly in front of all of them, and there's a, a moderator, and, and he gets to ask some questions first. He asked me, I don't know, 20, 25 questions. And then he opened it up to the floor. And what that means is literally anybody in, in the room, in this auditorium that was a part of our presbytery, could raise their hand and force me to answer any question they wanted that related, obviously, to things that I had been studying. When they're finally done, I don't know how long that took, when they're finally done, they, they nicely escort you out of the room, uh, and they talk about you. They just, they sit in a room, I, I literally could see them through the glass, like, talking about me and deciding whether or not they thought that I passed the exam. And then they vote collectively, and they bring you back in the room, and they tell you, hey, yes, you passed, no, you didn't. You can be a pastor, no, you can't. It's by far one of the most intimidating and humbling things I've ever done in my life, hands down. See, I had spent, like I said, years working hard in seminary, countless months, days, hours, preparing for these exams. I knew I wanted to be a pastor, and whether or not I would be ordained, it came down to this final public exam in front of some of the most intelligent, some of the most gifted pastors in the Midwest, including my bosses and people that I look up to most in ministry. 
I remember when they called my name to walk up in front of the room. It was like a 50-foot walk. It felt like an eternity. Literally felt like the longest walk of my life. Why? Well, because I felt like who I was in front of all of those people was at stake. Who I was, what I'd been doing with my life was literally on the line. And so in that moment, I had all sorts of fears, all sorts of anxieties leading up to that exam. What if I don't pass? What if I embarrass myself? What if I embarrass my family? What if I embarrass our church? What if I embarrass my staff team? What, what will people think of me? What am I going to do if I'm not a pastor? Now, thankfully I passed, but to be honest, there was a lot more going on in my heart than the answers coming out of my mouth. See, at a deep internal level, I was struggling with a question, and that question was, who am I? Or to put it differently, in that moment, I was wrestling with the question, where do I find my identity? Have you ever wrestled with those questions? See, if you're like me, I would imagine that you have, to a certain extent, in one form or another, you probably have. We all have, right? Think about it for a second. No matter how hard we try, we can't escape the quest for identity. That's because our identity, it, it shapes who we are. It shapes how we see ourselves. It shapes how other people see us. Our identity shapes how we live. It shapes what we do. It shapes our future hopes and dreams and plans. It shapes our thoughts. Our identity shapes what we value. Our, our, our identity is at the core of who we are. We can't escape it. 2015, Ronda Rousey was one of the top athletes in the world. This is a photo of her. Some of you might know this story. Her rise to fame began in 2008. Uh, she became the first American woman ever to win an Olympic medal. She won an Olympic bronze in the sport of judo, a form of martial art. Two years after winning that medal, she uh, got into MMA, mixed martial arts, and debuted as an amateur. Just a year after that, she turned pro, and she won her first MMA match in 25 seconds by knockout. Four years later, by 2015, Ronda Rousey had never been defeated. She'd won 12 consecutive MMA fights, mostly in the first round. She was a strike force champion, a UFC champion, and at the time, some claimed that she was the greatest female athlete to ever exist. Greatest female athlete to ever exist. But in November of 2015, something completely unexpected happened in a fight against an underdog named Holly Holm. Some of you have seen this. She suffered a brutal head kick. I mean, it's, it's brutal. Google it later. It knocks her out. She loses the fight. She loses her title. It was her first professional loss. And some say that it was the biggest upset in sports history. Months later, after uh, uh, Rousey appeared on the Ellen DeGeneres show, and, and, and she talked about what she was thinking, what she was feeling in the aftermath uh, of that fight, of that loss. Let's, let's take a, a short watch of this clip. Did you, I mean, did you worry for a minute, like, could this be permanent? Did I really hurt myself, and maybe I'll, I won't do this again? No, to be honest, like, what I was thinking, like, my, honestly, like, my thought, I was like, 
I was like uh, in the medical room and I was like down in the corner. I was sitting in the corner and I was like, what am I anymore if I'm not this? And I was literally sitting there and like thinking about killing myself and then exact second I'm like, I'm nothing. I'm like, what do I do anymore? And no one gives a shit about me anymore without this. And then, um, to be honest, I looked up and I saw my man, Travis was standing there and I was looked up at him and I was just like, I need to have his babies. I need to stay alive. <laughs> that was like, really, that was You need to stay alive. <laughs> and uh, I hadn't told anybody that. I think I only told him that. Um, but that was like what I was thinking. Like, I, I was meant to have him when, when I was at my lowest, for sure. Yeah. I don't know if I... Did you, I mean, did you... Okay, forget Travis, forget the baby comment, uh, just for a second. <laughs> I want you to catch, I want you to remember what the, the first thing that she said. I'm going to read it because I think it's important. This is what she says. She says, what am I anymore if I'm not this? I was literally sitting there thinking about killing myself. In that exact second, I'm like, I'm nothing. What do I do anymore? No one gives a blank about me anymore without this. That's heavy, right? It's heavy. You see, in Rousey's mind, that day that she entered the ring, there was far more on the line than just her title. Who she was, her identity, that was what was at stake. And it wasn't just that particular fight, that particular day. Every time Ronda Rousey got in the ring, she had to answer the question, who am I? Now, it's, it's easy for us to, to see what she was building her identity on, at least back then. And the point isn't to cast a stone in her direction. The point, though, is to acknowledge that every single one of us, all of us in here, we're all building our identity on something. We're all building our identity on something. What's on the line for you each day? For some of us, we find our identity in social circles, in our, our friends, the people that we spend the most time around. For others, we find our identity in academic achievements, our campus involvement, or maybe a future career. Case in point, look at our email signatures, right? The things that we put under our names that kind of justify, prove that we're worth it whenever we send an email. Others of us find our identity in our economic status, maybe the family we come from or the city that we're from. Some of us find identity in body image, our race, our gender, our sexuality, our relationship status. What is it for you? As you're sitting there kind of listening, as you're starting to reflect, if you're honest with, with yourself, how do you answer that question, who am I? Every single one of us, we all build our identity on something. We do. We can't escape it. And I think the reason why we can't escape it is because every single one of us was actually made to find our identity in something. That longing for identity, it's not wrong. It's good. It's not wrong, it's good. But the question that we have to wrestle with is, is our identity in the right place? Does it even matter? What difference does it make? Have you ever seriously thought about what would happen if you lost whatever it is that you're building your life on? Have you thought about that? What would happen if, 
if you lost the one thing that you think defines who you are, how would you feel? How would you respond? What would you do? Think for a second. What would happen if all of a sudden your friends left you? You found out they cut you out of their social circle. What would you do? What would happen if you got rejected from grad school? What would happen if you didn't get the job that you'd been working so hard for? What would happen if you lost your health? What would happen if you lost your body image, your money? What would happen if you lost your relationship with that boyfriend or that girlfriend? Let me press that a bit. What if you were single for the rest of your life? What if you lost your family? What if you lost your possessions, your comfort? What if you lost your achievements? What if you lost all the success that you've had? How would you feel? For most of us, it'd be devastating, wouldn't it? It'd be devastating. Most economists uh, consider the 2008 financial crisis the worst economic disaster to happen since the Great Depression in the 1930s. Most of you guys probably remember 2008. Financial institutions collapsed, the stock, market, start, stock markets plummeted, businesses went out of business. People lost their jobs, they lost their wealth, they lost their homes, they lost their families. Some people even lost their lives. CFO of Freddie Mac, the Federal Home Loan Mortgage Corporation, hung himself in his basement in the aftermath of the financial crisis. Chief executive of Sheldon Good, a U.S. real estate auction firm, shot himself in the head behind the wheel of his red Jaguar. Bear Stearns executive took a drug overdose and leapt from the 29th story of his office building. These are just a few of many tragic stories. Why did they do it? What, what led them to that end? Now, I'll be honest, I, I don't know entirely. I'm sure the answers are complex. I'm sure they vary. But no doubt, no doubt, each of them and all the rest wrestled with their own version of Ronda Rousey's haunting questions. Who am I? What am I anymore if I'm not this? What is that thing for you? That thing that you want so badly. That thing that you want so badly that if you didn't get it, or if you did get it but you lost it, that you'd be devastated. What is it? See, our, our longing for identity, it's, it's, I said it's not wrong. It's not. But I think that the modern quest for our identity, I think it crushes us because it's always based on some level of success, some achievement. It's always based on some human relationship. If and when any of those things are jeopardized or lost, well, so is our identity. And it's devastating. But you see, that's a lie. That's a cultural lie. The New Testament Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells a parable. He tells a story of two different men. Two different men that build their lives. They build their identities on two very different things. Let's take a look. If you brought your Bible, feel free to turn to Luke chapter 18. If not, as always, the verses will be behind me on the screen. We'll pick up the story in verse 
9. This is what it says. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. This is what he said. He said, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. Now, I want to pause there just for a second, and, and I want to admit there's a lot of stuff going on in the parable that we're going to look at, but, but tonight, there are a couple things that I want us to pay attention to in particular. First is that Jesus tells us that two guys go up to a temple to pray. Now, for a lot of us, it might be easy to kind of hear that and imagine two guys maybe sitting in a, in a church setting, kind of having a quiet time, personal devotion time. The problem with that is nothing could be further from the truth in context. See, a Jewish audience, part of who Luke, the author of the Gospel of Luke, was writing to, would have assumed that, that these men were joining in the corporate worship of the people that were gathered at the temple. And so, in other words, these two guys that go up to the temple to pray that Jesus is talking about, they're not praying in private. They're doing so very publicly in front of a lot of people. And the first guy that Jesus says prays in this public way is a Pharisee. Some of you have heard of that, know who they are. Who, who were they, though? Who were the Pharisees? Pharisees were Jews. They were devout religious leaders of Jesus' day. And if you've read a lot of the New Testament, you know that, that they're mentioned quite a bit, and a lot of times Pharisees are cast in a negative light. And that's because in many cases, Pharisees were extremely meticulous. They were over the top about trying to attain God's righteousness, trying to, to keep God's favor through their actions. In other words, their religious performance, their kind of religious track record, that was their identity. Notice again how, how the Pharisee prays. Look back at verse 11 and 12. Jesus says, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. Look at how egocentric his prayer is. I, I. I, I. See, rather than thanking God for what God has done for him, this Pharisee stands in front of everyone and he arrogantly brags to God and he brags in front of other people about his own moral purity and his own religious piety. See, the Pharisee's identity, it's, it's based on his own moral effort. It's based on his own ability to achieve. He's building his life on religious performance. That's how he answers the question, who am I? He says, look at everything I've done. Look at my track record. But like I said earlier, when we build our lives on performance, when we build our identity on achievement and success, whether that's religious performance or some other kind of performance, when that's what we build our life on, we're always going to be disappointed and we're always going to be disappointed with that because we're always going to lose that identity at some point in our lives. This plays out in all sorts of ways. Take, for instance, family. Maybe you get your identity from your parents' recognition of you. 
your parents' affirmation of you. What happens, though, if you make a choice and they reject you for it? What if they disapprove of you? Then what? What if maybe they don't reject you, they don't disapprove of you, but what happens when they're eventually gone and can't affirm everything you do? Then what? Same is true for any relationship, really, right? A friend, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a future spouse. What happens when they aren't there anymore? If your identity comes from some sort of professional acclaim or some kind of other accomplishment, what happens when you fail? What happens when you make a mistake? Or what happens when other people around you fail to see the value in what you're doing? Then what? I see all sorts of parents finding their identity in in parenting their kids. Full disclosure, I'm tempted to do the same thing. But what happens when kids move out of the house? What happens when kids get married and start having a family of their own? Then where does a parent find his or her identity? There are a lot of other ways to talk about it. But but if your life, if, if your identity is built on some sort of performance, you're always going to be exhausted. You're always going to be disappointed. And my guess is you're going to be crushed at some point because it's never going to be enough. You're going to find yourself on this perpetual hamster wheel trying to prove yourself to other people and trying to prove yourself maybe to even yourself. Maybe that's how you feel right now. It sucks, doesn't it? See, at best, having to prove ourselves all the time, it's completely exhausting. That's best case. I'm just tired of having to prove myself every stinking day. At worst, it crushes us. It crushes us because there's no way we can possibly sustain that. There's no way I can continually prove myself day in and day out. It's not sustainable. If that's where your identity comes from, you're always going to lose it at some point. Then what? Okay, but what if there's a better way? What if there's a better place that you and I can find our identity? What if there's something better to build our lives on, a better answer to the question, who am I? What if we were created by a personal God and given a personal mission and calling, a part to play in God's story? Let's go back to Jesus' parable in Luke 18. Remember, he's talking about two guys praying at a temple, a Pharisee and a tax collector. And just a reminder about tax collectors, Austin talked about a tax collector last week, but tax collectors were often associated with, with notorious sinners, And they were despised in Jesus' day. And they were despised because in many ways they were greedy and they got rich off collaborating with the Roman Empire. And Jews hated Romans because, you know, the Romans exploited the Jews. And so did tax collectors. They exploited their own people. Notice how the tax collector prays in Jesus' story. Picking up in verse 13. Jesus says, but the tax collector, he stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And look how Jesus responds. He says, I tell you, 
this man, rather than the other one, he went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Two different men, two completely different answers to the question, who am I? You see the difference? See, one is a Pharisee caught in the daily grind of building his life, his identity on his own moral effort, his own achievement. It's built on performance, having to prove himself to others. His identity is built on what other people think about him. The other, though, is a tax collector. And rather than his own performance, rather than his own track record, the tax collector, he finds his identity in something completely different. The tax collector finds his identity in God's grace and God's mercy. And catch this. That identity, it's not an identity that he achieved. It's an identity that he received. It's a free gift of God. A free gift that he could do nothing to earn. A free gift that you and I can't do anything to earn. Ever. See, whether we realize it or not, that gift is the greatest gift that you and I will ever receive. The good news of the gospel is the best news that we will ever hear. That news that that Jesus went to the cross. He sacrificed himself. He rose from the grave to rescue us from our sin and the consequences of our rebellion. So that's that's a profound statement if we step back and think about it because it means that you and I were so flawed We're so guilty that that nothing less than the death of God's own son, God's own son could rescue us. And at the same time, that same statement is profound because it tells us that Jesus loves us. Jesus values us so much that he was willing to do it. He didn't have to do it, but he did. And Jesus tells us that if we put our faith and our trust in him and him alone, then He's offering us an identity that's completely different, an identity that's far better than anything our culture or anyone else or anybody could offer. What if instead of looking inside of ourselves or, or looking to what other people think for our identity, what if we turned to Jesus and found our identity? What if we turned to Jesus to answer the question, who am I? What sort of difference would that make in your life if Jesus is where you found your identity? Imagine experiencing relational disappointment or being isolated or abandoned by a friend. Imagine that. And yet not feeling crushed. Being abandoned and yet not feeling alone. Why? Why would we feel that way? Well, because you know that God says if your identity is in Jesus, then he will always be with you. Deuteronomy 31, verse 8. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Imagine being okay the next time it seems like you're forgotten. Or the next time it seems like nobody cares about you. Why? Why would we be okay with that? Because we know that God says if your identity is in Jesus, 
then he continually delights in you. He continually rejoices over you, even if it feels like nobody else does. Zephaniah 3, 17. God will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. God rejoices over you with singing if your identity is in him. Imagine being freed from the shame of feeling dirty from what you did last weekend. How can we experience that freedom? How can we think that? Because you know that God says that if your identity is in Jesus, then you've been washed clean. Isaiah 118. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be wool. Imagine messing up again, right? I blew it again. I did it again. But instead of tailspinning into the despair that often comes with our constant mess-ups, our constant sin, instead of that despair, you have hope. Why? Why would you have hope? Because you know that God says if your identity is in Jesus, then you're forgiven. 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Imagine being okay even if your family rejects you. Why? Why would I be okay if my family rejects me? Because you know that God says if your identity is in Jesus, then you've been adopted into God's family and God approves of you. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. See, that, that question, who am I? If your identity is in Jesus, the answer to that question The Bible tells us the answer to that question is that you are someone who is never alone. You are someone who is delighted in. You are someone who is rejoiced over. You are someone who is washed clean. You are someone who is forgiven. You are someone who is made new. You are someone who is adopted into God's family. That's your identity. That's the better identity that Jesus offers. It doesn't matter what our society says about you or what you even think about yourself. What matters is what God says about you. As the music team comes up, I'll close really quickly with this thought. If if you're willing to believe the gospel, if you're willing to believe the gospel and all its claims about Jesus and all its claims about what Jesus has done for you and, and who you are in him, If you're willing to believe that, if you're willing to embrace that, then nothing that happens in your life can ever take away your identity. Nothing. Nothing that happens in your life can ever take away your identity if it's found in Jesus. That's because your identity in Jesus is not achieved, it's received. See, I know that there are all sorts of things in college that you guys are going to be tempted to put your identity in. I hope tonight that that you're compelled to believe that Jesus offers you a far better identity, 
one that you don't have to earn, and one that you'll never lose. Amen.